always already I'd like to welcome James Padaglione Jr., who is a PhD student at the College of William and Mary, and his research interests cover religio-aesthetics and cosmologies of the African diaspora, um, especially concentrating on Catholicism in the Afro-Latin Caribbean and the United States. So James, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me, John. Um, and so James is great, because not only are we interviewing him for the podcast now, but um, in a couple weeks we'll be talking about a book that he suggested we read, um, Living Alterity, which is edited by Emily S. Lee. So we're also looking forward to that. So we had a, a lot of amazing contributions from James to the to the podcast, which is super exciting. Oh, fantastic. Um, so today we're going to, I want to talk a little bit to James about um, a paper he's going to pr- be presenting um, at the Harvard Graduate Conference on Religion in a few weeks, which is called Mortified but Incorruptible, the Radical Black Mysticism of St. Martin de Porres, and then also his information um, dissertation project, where I'm going to intrusively ask him about, even though it's super um, information. So um, I was wondering, perhaps maybe to start, James, if you could give um, us and the listeners a little bit of background on St. Martin de Porres and his life and the context and the milieu and kind of which um, he's operating, and then from there we can kind of think about the work that you're doing with him. Okay, so San Martin um, was a 17th century um, mulatto, so half Spanish, um, half African. His mother was a freed African slave, um, and he was from Peru, and he was a lay brother in the Dominican order there, um, and his ministry in his contemporary time um, dealt with the African and the indigenous population in Lima, um, and he would redirect funds from the church towards those communities. He would feed and clothe and bring people into the church, um, even when he wasn't technically supposed to. Uh, He was also trained as a surgeon barber um, apprentice when he was a teenager, and so he had uh, a repertoire of healing skills and and medicinal, you know, corandarismo in Spanish, curing herbal healing properties. Um, and some of this knowledge, there are some indications of some records that some of this might have come from his mother, who might have been passing on some kind of uh, West African herbal cosmology to him as well. So um, when he dies, he has a pretty large following in Lima um, amongst all different classes. The, the elite Creoles like him because they can use him to show that the colonial project is working and that even one of the castas, you know, the, the, the race mixtures, one of the, one of the mulattoes can become someone who the people are recognizing as a saint and who they're thinking, um, is showing the, you know, the signs of sainthood. And this is good for the colonial project. Um, but at the same time, if you look into the records, the, the things that the indigenous and the African populations of Lima are remembering him for and that they are, celebrating him and forming a cult um, in his in his memory immediately at his death. Um, there's a lot of 
if you read across the grain or if you read through mm-hmm. these stories, you see indications of um, what I would deem and what has been written by other scholars as um, indications of a kind of the emergence of a black radical political theology or a, ra- a, ra- a radical black aesthetic um, that seems to be a hallmark of the African diasporic experience um, through slavery and post-slavery. Um, and so there, it's an interesting story to me that even in Martin's time, he is kind of connected to a tradition that hasn't yet developed yet. You know, mm-hmm. there aren't tropes yet associated with a black radical tradition because it's the early 17th century still. Um, and so these things are developing and they're in process. Um, but, he, but he fits this tradition. And so I think it's really interesting um, as a way, one more way to try to peek into what is the black radical tradition or what is a, a black radical aesthetic or a black political theology um, that somehow speaks um, against or as a critique of systems of, and logics of modernity um, and, of course, the kind of the, the, the valuation and the capital machinery that was introducing slavery and the mm-hmm. colonial project into the New World initially under the Spanish. Sure. Now, what do you, I mean, what kind of, you know, particularities of the context, both of kind of mystical Catholicism or, you know, ties or half ties to the Inquisition are going on? What kind of was that kind of context that um, Martin is emerging from? And then do you think there's something particular about, you know, these moments and the way they interact with these strands in Catholicism plus with uh, colonial practices and colonial corporealities, which is something that you're really interested in in the, in the paper, um, kind of how is this context, you know, what is Martin and then the following that develops after his death, um, you know, what's kind of the interaction between him and those particular Catholic and colonial contexts? So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, the context that he's living in has a, there are a lot of different you know events and happenings going on around him so one of them as you mentioned is the inquisition um lima is not only the the seat of the vice royalty mm-hmm. of of um peru which is the the, the whole entire region the, the 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 colony which covers most of south america um except for colombia part um but then lima is also the seat of the new world inquisition and so you have a, a lot of different, you know, uh, sites and realms of discourses and power discourses that are emerging in Lima. Um, so you have the one realm, and this extends across the church and into the Spanish colonial laws, but you, of course you have the slavery system itself, which is viewing, um, you know, the, the black body or the Africanized, racialized body um, as a as value as labor that mm-hmm. can be ex- value extracted in order to um, you know produce um, some kind of tangible wealth for the crown. I mean, at the same time, the Catholic mysticism, um, which is emerging in this in this time period, um, thanks to um, Saint Teresa de Jesus, she's a 17th century nun in Spain who is very mystical, and her writings are spreading all throughout the Iberian world, and people are kind of following this track. Um, and so this, these ideas of the, the body as a site 
of mystical union with God is also a kind of competing theory of the body that mm-hmm. is that emerging or kind of crystallizing at this time. Um, and then at the same time, you have, you know, just a kind of more meta level analysis. You have, you know, the kinds of things that Foucault would talk about where the, the, at the rise sort of, of the modern state, the, the civil body politic is transitioning um, from one where the, the, the punishment of the social body is kind of directed externally on a person mm-hmm. through kinds of, you know, central, uh, you know, people in the stocks or putting someone, whipping someone in front of the entire community, um, that we're having this transition where, you know, the self is going to govern from the inside. And so the body directly punishing the body in a kind of civil political way is something that's transitioning out. Catholic mysticism still puts a lot of kind of punishment on the body through penance Mm -hmm. and through mortification, which is punishing the body, but, but in a way to kind of, kind of open it up into a nodal point between a divine union and, and your inner self. So it's a slightly different kind of, the, the, the thinking behind Catholic mysticism and mortification, but you see that the body is, in these different discourses takes on different dimensions of signification, mm-hmm. um, whether it is just the purely economic valuation of slavery or whether it is the civil body politic idea um, or the mortification. What's interesting in Spanish colonies is because, you know, because they don't have a tidy separation of church and state, that you have these multiple kind of demonstrations or multiple technologies of subject creation. And one can be a subject by following the kind of mortification, the mysticism of the Catholic Church. One can find a kind of subjecthood through that, um, even if one is stripped or denied a political subjecthood through the system of slavery or through the system of casta, which is not even if you're a slave, but if you're just anyone of any kind of racialized phenotype, um, that your subjecthood is somehow decreased on a hierarchy of color. And so the the body is an interesting flux, I would say, in 17th century Spain. And really, this is the beginning of modernity, mm-hmm. generally, for the rest of the Western world. So it's interesting to see what happens in the Spanish case first. Right. I mean, it was really interesting to me as I was reading through your paper to think about all the different ways that the body is articulated and kind of articulates itself in kind of very multivalent ways, right? So it's, you know, whether it's the, you know, the difference between the, you know, the different sorts of subjectivities or, you know, technologies of the self or whatever that the body and particularly the body caught up in this uh, mystical Catholicism is articulated at the same time that there are developing techniques of enslaving bodies and of racializing bodies. And I thought the kind of the multivalence of the body um, in, you know, in this context and then particularly the way that you're mobilizing that multivalent body in your project is very fascinating. So I was wondering if you could perhaps talk um, more specifically about kind of the bodily or corporeal practice um, that either San Martin was, you know, advocating at the time or the way that his followers took up kind of particular corporeal practices. Right. Well, with San Martin, in his life, 
he did practice mortification acts. Um, and so that ranged from going to a banana field and whipping himself, um, you know, in the very traditional kind of Catholic mm-hmm. way that we might think of, um, to he would also deny himself the pleasures of eating excessive amounts of food in order that he could share his food with um, people who were more hungry or more needy in this in the city of Lima. Um, and so that kind of denial of the body. And then another practice of his own body mortification that, that he is on record of talking about is that he would actually allow uh, mosquitoes to drink his blood and bite him because he saw this as part of, like a natural part of life, that they're here to eat us. We are here to, you know, we eat plants and animals and that he didn't see that there was any reason for a human to like go out of its way to stop a mosquito from landing on himself, right? Um, So he's got his own kind of, his mechanics of the body sees that he's seeing his body as not just um, a place where God can talk to him, and that's why he's using the mortification of the whipping. But he's also, I, I, what I'm seeing at least, is that he's having this conception of himself that doesn't stop with just his body, so mm-hmm. that he is trying to kind of rewrite the limits of his body um, through species, across species, and uh, you know, to other people in his town and in his environment and, and other living things. Um, but then of course the, one of the most significant aspects of his life, and I think it's one of the turning points that, that determines the direction that he, he followed was that him personally as a mulatto or as a half, half black, half Spanish man, um, his skin color was darker than what I guess the average considered range for mulatto would be. Um, his father, um, in his youth was governor of Ecuador and so his dad was of high-standing white Spaniard. And when, his, when he saw that his son's skin color was darker than he had anticipated it would be, um, he, he kind of rejected the family when, and left them and only comes back to the family later when Martin has a little sister who is much lighter and kind of ex- the, the, the expected color of a mulata of what she, sh- you know, what she should look like. And so the, the color trope in his own life, the, the racialized and like the phenotypical dimensions of being a racialized person, that his skin color as a dark moreno feature um, kind of leads the way everywhere he goes in Lima before he ever gets a chance to speak for himself or anything like that or to, you know, to develop his own ideas of who him, he is as a person, he has this dark skin, which is his kind of entree into Lima. And so um, when he becomes a teenager, he donates himself to the church um, because there are laws preventing anyone of African descent from joining as a priest um, directly into the ministry. And so when his father finds out that he had given himself as a donado to the church, his dad wants to kind of get the rules changed or just kind of you know broken a bit so his son um won't be a servant and martin rejects this privilege is how i'm going to read this or how i feel reads he rejects this white privilege and says that i'm happy donating myself you know and like in that you kind of see a, a a grab of agency um where he's controlling the narrative around his skin color and so that 
forms a kind of the framing of his whole, his entire life and his ministry. And after his death, um, in Lima, immediately you have, especially um, African um, enslaved Christians who are considered casta bosales um, because they're they're non-Hispanicized, you say. This is what the Spanish would consider. These are people who are straight coming from Africa into the colonies. And they are creating images, medallions, candles, metal figures, statues with his image, with his face. Um in the Creole population at his death, starts to put you know devotional images of him in their house, and this is this is immediate. This is you know this is what eventually gets the Vatican's attention that there's something about this person that they should look into, and so all of the the, the fashioning of his image and making images of him throughout Lima um, here as a man who people of his skin color would normally not be afforded, um, you know, any kind of social wealth or, or some kind of social value. Um, but when, when you, you know, and I, I tried to think of this, of course, no historical record is going to speak explicitly about this. Mm-hmm. But for every household in Lima that had an enslaved person, and this enslaved person might have encountered these, these images of Martin around the city, in their everyday coming and going through their labor, it is a kind of a dialectical, you know, it, it is, it, you're looking at someone who looks just like you, who you see the entire city kind of putting above them and fawning and giving devotion to. And I think that that, he doesn't have to say a word, it's just his face speaks to so many different issues that could have that could be festering or things that could be inside of the enslaved people's consciousnesses mm-hmm. um, that this image becomes fortifying and somewhat um, it, it, it gives them a fortitude to keep going and to, 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 to maybe transcend or to kind of break out of the consciousness of slavery in their own regard. Right. So to, I mean, kind of extend on that a little bit, I was wondering if you could maybe talk then about the way that, um, you know, the status or the practices or the reading or the technologies of, um, of, of and acted upon the black body and of black skin kind of particularly open on to what you call in the, in the abstract to the paper, the black dialectic struggle for life. So... The, the, the theorist um, Achille Mbembe um, has written about necropolitics, mm-hmm. this idea of necropolitics, which he takes up following Foucault. Um, and he, what he's looking at with necropolitics is not so much, not with like biopolitics, you know, the, the power of a sovereign to kind of promote life or to keep people alive um, through biopolitics, but the the power to put people to death, the, the sovereign power that one has to put people to death or to enact some kind of, you know, death in life um, against certain populations within the, the, the civil body. And so what you see with enslaved peoples, <clears throat> whether it is the direct um, deaths that are caused from slavery or whether it is the the kind of living torture that enslaved peoples are always under threat with um, on plantations or through masters. Um, 
whether they're it, especially in the Spanish colonies, they were really not good for this, but they were they were good for cutting off a hand or cutting off a head, <clears throat> putting it on a stake or a pike, and and kind of using this body to signify, you know, torturing a body or maiming a body and using pieces of the body as some kind of a signification that one, you're, you know, we are sovereign over your body as the master of this plantation or as the Spanish laws that support, you know, the slave system, that this is a very direct showing of who has bodily sovereignty. And it's not the enslaved person if you are being tortured in that way or if you're being put to death. Um, and so that kind of, those kinds of technologies um, are <clears throat> kind of these existential threats that hang over enslaved populations, not just in 17th century Lima, but throughout the entire experience of slavery. And so there have been people within slavery history and slave studies and Africana studies throughout the 20th century who've written about these kinds of ideas, um, uh, we have Orlando Patterson, who is a sociologist who's written about slavery, um, and he has a, a book actually called Slavery and Social Death. Right. And it talks about the kind of the existential social death that accompanies living a kind of a, a life that is so exposed to material death. You get a social death as well, where you're, you know, you don't have a social position, your kinship patterns are nullified in the eyes of the authorities and whatnot um but that when that kind of writing and while it is it's it's important to recognize the social structure of slavery and how it did work against enslaved life in that way you don't you know sometimes it runs the risk of actually making every enslaved life sound like it was pure torture from the beginning to end and that there is no kind of you know (laughs) This agency is so problematic to, you know, even to look for, to find, or to use as a category. But, you know, of course, in slavery studies, just, I think, the human element, people want to see or hear that it wasn't all one-sided abuse, right? That there's some, you want to know, you want to hope that the enslaved communities are doing something or thinking something, right, that, that can kind of, you know, whether this is trying to demonstrate their humanity for old school historiography or you know, trying to fit them into the the image of a of an acting subject or whatnot, but I th- I think what blackness studies has gotten around to recently, uh, and maybe not recently, recently, recently within the last 30, 40 mm-hmm. years or so in the academy, um, is a kind of looking to to see what is the quality of experience that can be described as a black life or a black experience um and so not blackness as an an essential element of someone's you know phenotypes or their dna or their ethnicity or anything that that kind of essentialism in racism and race theory is very old and we've kind of pushed that away and the beginnings to the middle of the 20th century we came into a kind of Mm anti-essentialist position regarding race where if race is not biological, we're saying that race is a social construct, right? And we're trying to de-essentialize what it is that is race. Well, Paul Gilroy, in his book, The Black Atlantic, um, has put forward the idea of the anti-anti-essentialist, where this allows for blackness to not be essentialized as any one static thing, 
but we're not completely anti-essentialist with blackness either. That blackness is a kind of fluidity that can can be used in certain circumstances, um, strategic essentialization um, for the purpose of a dialectical struggle that one is in whether one wants to be or not at certain times and that you can harness the experiences uh, and the quality of blackness, which is nothing more perhaps than learning how to, to, to navigate and to be spontaneous and to develop a, a repertoire, say, of riffs or some kinds of like tools or tricks that one can harness and assemble and reassemble for the purposes of not just this, you know, not, not necessarily explicit resistance, but disruption. And, and, and so this comes out, it's more of an aesthetic. And that is, mm-hmm. that's where the, the black radical aesthetic and this kind of black political theology it, it is born in this kind of a, a mode. It is a mode of not just struggling, but it's a mode of surviving. And it's, it's a kind of a mode that, here we go. I've been waiting for this. It's always already. Oh, right. We're <laughs> All so right, happy about that. The, the mode of blackness is always already one step ahead of the logics of modernity, it seems. And that, where modernity is trying to tidy everything up within, say, conceptual boxes in a kind of things that are cognitively grasped. There is a kind of quality or an essence or something. I don't know. These words are a little... uh, There's a chi of blackness Mm -hmm. that is kind of precognitive and a kind of Kantian. It's like it is before the level of the category, but it's nonetheless potent. And it's there. We can't always name it and identify it in a in a rationalized hierarchical way, but it's sure. a, it's an element that's there. And that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about reading your paper is that you know it it you know not maybe not necessarily explicitly throughout, but it takes you know something like agency or something like you know blackness and it decentralize it but it does so and and you know unsettles those categories but in a way that's so tied to practice that's so tied to the body um in ways that i think are really kind of profound and very productive um because i kept thinking you know what categories would i use to to classify the things that you're talking about and, you know you even said you know and and what you were just talking about the you know agency's not quite the right category but it's something like it and so that kind of ineffableness i think is something that um that this work really captures and is very impressive about uh about doing so so i think that's really um uh, a very very interesting um powerful thing that you're doing in the paper um I was wondering if we could maybe turn a little bit to talk about um, kind of the emerging dissertation project uh, that you're working on. And I'm particularly interested in what you mentioned to me as the possibility of thinking about sainthood as some sort of alternative discursive formation or practice um, in response to modernity or in response to Hegel or in response to something like modern teleology. Right, right. So I guess before, just to to connect back to the last point, sure. um, I have to give credit to the theorist Fred uh, Moten okay. for the way that he has kind of, he's he's articulated an aesthetics of a black radicalism that that is this, and he asked this question of like, how can we 
what other explanation is there if there isn't something called blackness, basically, that can explain the kind of vitality of the, the living cultures and the communities that are placed in such a close proximity to very literal death and existential death. And so that, that framing of blackness as this like exuberance and this vitality um, in the face of death um, is what then I'm going to use to, to bring my, my dissertation, which I'm, I'm conceiving as a historical ethnography because we're, you know, we're going to be in, we're, we're living in the unfolding of past events all the time. And so I don't see how to separate it out, but I want to bring the storyline, if you will, or bring the focus of Martin from the 17th century and bring it into the 21st century. Um, because this is where, you know, the, the saint, the story of a saint, if you will, stops at the death of that person, right? And it's, it is what happens in the, once the person dies, is what then becomes the, the legends of this person's sainthood. And so um, this idea of the, the, the black radical tradition um, also contains within it um, an idea of ensemble and that the the agency, if you will, is not in any one mm-hmm. person or that there isn't any one director or overseer of the black radical tradition, but that it's an ensemble that, uh, as Fred Moten describes it, it's this kind of invagination process, which um, is constantly sort of always pregnant with the next uh, you know, the next development that is going to need for whatever kind of situation develops in whether the, you know, whether it was in, in slavery, whether it's after slavery, whether it's in Jim Crow or whether it is in any other kind of apartheid systems or something that the, the element of the black radical creation is kind of always, always pregnant and always reproducing itself with a new form. Mm-hmm. And this is what gives it this kind of, impenetrability to modernity's logics or to the way modernity is able to grab onto it because it's by the time modernity kind of figures out a category for these things, it's already moved on to a new iteration. Um, But that ensemble idea, and he draws this coming out of black musical aesthetics. So when you think of like jazz call and response or jazz improv and, and spontaneity, He's using these hallmarks of the black tradition to say that this is kind of the ethics of blackness or this is the way blackness as a social body constructs itself, that it's a kind of cooperative, communal co-creation. Um, I'm seeing that as a kind of parallel with sainthood as well in that it takes the cult of devotees um, not only you know invoking your name and making you know and claiming that miracles are happening to them in your name, but then also just kind of making a lot of noise, making a lot of a lot of attention for the Vatican, and that in both of the, these aspects, none of these things are being done by any one person. They're all a kind of a collective effort. In and so, I think what I'm trying to start thinking through is that this idea of sainthood. As, like you had described it, sainthood as a practice that is some kind of a radical, different figuring of a subject um, in a 20, especially for what I'm looking at in the context of the 21st century, whether it's 
late modernity or post-modernity, however we want to phrase what we're in. Um, but how are the cults that are currently still forming in the name of San Martin, how are they kind of disrupting what we look at as the subject within this North Atlantic modernity? How do we look at um, the the idea of homo economicus is that is there you know when when sainthood cult calls for you to excessively give of yourself to others are you then you know somehow disrupting or living in a, in a different mode of being than the kind of you know individualized self-centered rational approach um the the hermeneutic or the, the heuristics that come from the enlightenment so the, the 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 not it's not it's not a dis, it's a discursive practice, but it's really a practice. I think sainthood, mm-hmm. and when you couple the sainthood element with the fact that there is also the black radical tradition within Martin's story, what you then get, or at least what I'm starting to see, is that this is an elaboration of. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, um, I'm like reading Spinoza through Deleuze, but like, you know, this is a, a refiguring of a body mm-hmm. that is not, you know, it's, it's not just one body contained, but these are bodies meeting and that perhaps sainthood is some kind of an abstract machine that gives these mm-hmm. communities a chance for them all to reach their highest, you know, actualized abilities and that what you see with the sainthood trope that it is always, uh, you know, love and the ethics of giving and the ethics of giving to others and the ethics of community and, like, the metaphysics, almost, of community. Um, and it's a different, you know, it's not the humanist kind of uh, metaphysics of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so all of these things, all the, the sainthood trope disrupts a lot of the, the the logics of this, you know, the neoliberalism, post-modernity, North Atlantic modernity, all these different terms. I, you know, all of them, I, you could use them all, and they all have their problems and their benefits, but you you know what I mean, I guess. Yeah, and I wonder <laughs> if you could maybe then also, I mean, kind of one more trope or one more um, machine that it's direct, that it seems to me that it's disrupting and that, you know, you hint at um, as well as it's, disrupting a teleological view of history or of world history or something like that. Could you talk a yes. bit a, a bit about how you think that works? Yeah, and this too, I'm trying to, in the way that I present this dissertation, I want to make sure that I don't try to put it into a form of like, let's watch progress over time. Let's exactly. start in the 17th century and work our way through, you know. And so, you know, the thing with the just within the realm of sainthood itself, right? There's a kind of timelessness in San Martin that now that he's a saint, he can appear, you know, in all different places and all different times in the world. And that's part of the cosmology of the metaphysics that they're working on, that there isn't a separation between, it's not a teleological line that he died in 1639 and that he stays in that past and he's mm-hmm. Um And so the, just that, using that, as a, as a way to kind of then let's let's talk about teleological time and world historical significance and whatnot, that this story, and I even hate using that word, the, the, the story or what, you know, the, the, the happenings and the events 
surrounding Martine's life in a way I don't know where to draw the boundary and say that this happened in the past before the other one or one is causally causing the other one or whatnot because right. it doesn't it doesn't really have to develop that way. You see these little emergences, little 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 glimpses of San Martin and different aspects of his personal life show up throughout well, you know, for example, in nineteen forty three in Omaha, Nebraska, you have the Saint Martin de Porres Club doing mm-hmm. sit ins um, because they, you know, and they're they're doing sit-ins, you know, fifteen years or so before anyone's doing sit-ins in the Jim Crow South, and it's like, you know, it's just one of those. It's like a little aberration that just pops up, and history would have a hard way of kind of accounting for like how did the sit-in model, you know, first get displayed in Omaha, Nebraska, in the late forties or the mid forties before, you know, does it work its way to the South, you know, like that kind of very looking for how these things are all interrelated in a kind of cause and effect way. I I'm trying to disturb that. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I think the, the history of, or not the history, but if you have a cosmology or a conception that causes you to view the past as very potent into the present and that the, you know, that the past can influence the present that the past almost kind of contains its own agency for influencing your present. Definitely. You are, you're not thinking in a, in a Hegelian, uh, you know, westernized time frame anymore. Um, and this, uh, Stephen Palmier is a, an anthropologist who's done work on Afro-Cuban religions, what, you know, people would typically describe as Santeria. Um, but he, he's done work on that to show how they, it is not some kind of a pre-modern thing that is being brought into modernity, but that rather people in Cuba are bringing these practices into modernity with them and that they're articulating between modernity and between this other kind of just another cosmology that has a different metaphysics of time. And that if for him, his question, and I think it's a great question that can be applied to sainthood and to a lot of other you know, things that modernity and historiography would render silent. But why is it that so much of the stories and the past of the African diaspora can only exist in some kind of a spectral form or Mm -hmm. that I have to tell you a ghost story or something in order to tell you maybe what happened on a plantation because I don't have the voices of the enslaved in the way that I could just go to an archive and pull up, you know, what Thomas Jefferson was thinking at this certain time or whatnot. And that so the history is incapable of kind of resurrecting the voices of of slavery and that and all and, and the deaths of the African diaspora because that is exactly the way history was designed. And and, and the, the logics of history and the logics of of the enslaved peoples as pre you know like post not pre-human but just like mm-hmm. pre, they're they're prior they're prior to it and then and hegel's viewing africa as as prior to stepping into history and moving through a historical development towards a rationalized freedom um and so if that system that mechanics has rendered so many dead african um, slaves and so many people from the diaspora, it has rendered them dead. 
we really don't have any other way to talk about them unless we then kind of reshift our cosmology or our or our metaphysics or we tinker with the definition of what agency is or what a subject is in the way we do our research. That way we can allow for the unembodied energy of these other peoples, uh, you know, to, to enter into the record in a way that honors the communities that we're actually trying to write about and work with. That's um, that's really amazing, and maybe actually a really uh, amazing point to stop, although we do have a couple more uh, uh, fun questions for you, if that's all right, right, to move on to those. Um, and the first yeah, is if you, could, if you could suggest a movie you recently saw or some fiction you've recently read for our audience. Ooh. You know, okay, it's... This isn't even, this sounds, this is going to make me sound like one of those very boring grad students who doesn't do We love any people, don't worry about it. I know, right, okay. I actually, for the first time this summer with my younger sister, I was home visiting my family, but I watched The Color Purple for the first time. And, uh, you know, being someone who studies black aesthetics Mm -hmm. and the African diaspora and whatnot, you know, I was like, I guess I should actually watch this movie because I hear about it so much. And so that, I enjoyed it as a, you know, as fiction and it's kind of old, but it still kind of ties into my research. So it actually isn't, isn't that far away. Oh boy. And I guess fiction books. I did read the hunger game series. I really liked it. I did too. And I'm not even, you know, I was, you know, not going to say if I was embarrassed or not reading that on the Amtrak train. No, no, no need to. No, no. It's interesting. I have a, a friend of mine who teaches the Hunger Games as a critique of the neoliberal state. See, that's what I was thinking when I was reading it. It's it's beautiful and it's brilliant. Um, yeah. So yeah. no, no, no shame at all about. All right, that great. And then our, our <laughs> other question for you is that you get to uh, time travel with anyone theorist, theorist like super broadly understood. Um, who do you travel with and where and when do you go? Ooh. Hmm. Okay. This is not, I have been listening to your podcast recently, but I'm not doing this just because I'm trying to put a plug in or something, but I honestly, <laughs> I would travel with Hegel, um, to the Caribbean, perhaps maybe not, yeah. Hegel, but definitely to the Caribbean, just because I've had these questions myself and I love, um, Buck Morris's book mm-hmm. because it, it, it makes me, you know, I was in Puerto Rico doing some research this summer and I look, you know, I was just walking around and looking, thinking, you know, everywhere I was going uh, and I'm walking around with, in my backpack, I have a copy of Phenomenology of Spirit, right? You know, and in my, in my head, it's always like, what would Hegel think about this? What would he think about this? Not in a, I'm dying to know what he thinks, but to kind of challenge him on like 500 years of modernity and look at what's going on. We're exactly. not quite where you thought we would be. What do you think about this, Hegel? Um, but I, you know, I, I jokingly think sometimes that he hovers in the corner of my bedroom laughing at me because I just feel like I can't get away from Hegel even if I want to. So Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, this was even came out when I interviewed Susan back then, and it's obviously in her book and her work on Hegel and Haiti. Uh, but the way that, you know, the way that you just talked about, you know, thinking about what Hegel has to say about whatever is the kind of the only productive or I, mean, I would even say ethical that we can interrogate Hegel or bring Hegel today. Right, right. And you know, for better or worse, like, oh man, he's one of those, I love to hate him and hate to love him. But he has definitely, 
he put some ideas or he put a form of an idea of, you know, he put his ideas out there in a form in a way that has allowed for a lot of people to, to tinker with and think through. And, you know, he's given us something. Even if we find things to critique and nuance and all, I just, I, I appreciate someone who, who, you know, the things that they write can be so kind of electrically charged that things cluster around it and all. So yeah, Hegel, Hegel's going to keep me employed. Hopefully if I can, you know, like <laughs> Hegel will give me a lifelong, you know, goal or something to write about so yeah i mean it's interesting though because i last year i was teaching hegel i mean just the master slave dialectic to undergrads and so you know we did that and it's obviously impossibly difficult and an amazing challenge and then we also then read um susan's article on hegel and haiti um and that that was when they started picking up on hegel and that's when they started doing something with hegel so so i think that that's a really interesting way to think about it that's cool. Bringing um, it into some real, some world historical <laughs> events, right? Totally. Um, so, all right. So, James Padiglione, a PhD student in American Studies at the College of William and Mary, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was totally fascinating, um, and I'm really excited that more people are going to get to hear about what you're doing. Oh, I appreciate it very much, John, and uh, Rachel and Dee as well. Thank you, and keep up the wonderful work. Podcast.wordpress.com. Email us advice questions or text you like us to discuss at always at gmail.com. Like our Facebook and subscribe to our RSS feed. Thanks to B for the music covering Fleetwood Mac's landslide. Coming up on the next episode, we'll discuss distribution of the sensible by Jacques Rancière and his book, Politics of Aesthetics. Until then, bye.